It is so fantastic to have live people instead of that dead staff in here worshiping. And we're so glad you're here. And for those of you still online, we're so thankful that you're here as well. We had no idea what to expect. And it's just a blessing to have you. We're, listen, from the moment we had to stop meeting for a while, uh, my goal was to get this place opened up as simply and quickly as we can. Uh, understanding our overarching goal is always to honor God in everything we do and get people to come to Christ. Uh, you know, I, we just, how do we get our church doors open? And so we're just taking simple steps. And I, and I know uh, a lot of people aren't yet comfortable coming. That's fine. That's why we have our online presence. Uh, and our online presence has been so much better than we could have ever imagined, praise God. A lot of people are waiting until we have something for children. I get that. Uh, our target date to have all our children's ministries functioning on on, some, on Sunday is uh, Ju- uh, July 5th. So July 5th, Upstreet, Wombaland Youth will all be functioning. We're going to try to have child care for three years and under as quickly as we can. Uh, um, that's the next priority. And when I make that a priority, that means it will get done real quick. And so we'll get that. And until then, we're just thankful you're here. You know, those of you still watching online, when you're ready to come back, come back. We love having you. Uh, it's good to see your faces. I was afraid you would all be wearing masks. I was hoping some more, a couple of you needed to, but it's just good to have you. I'm sorry, I wasn't looking at you, Tony. It's just not many people here you end up being the one I look at. But it's just great to have you all and uh, see your smiling faces, hear you sing. Uh, it, it has been a wonderful experience, a different experience. I can't believe in my lifetime we'd ever have to do this. And so we've just kind of learned from it and, and still keep moving on. We're in this series. I've enjoyed this series, On the Road with Elijah. I hope you've enjoyed it. Elisha's a fascinating character. Uh, he's this ninth century prophet. He functioned from about 875 to about 853 BC, primarily during the reign of Ahab. And, and when you're with Elisha, you just understand he's this conflict he has with the king, King Ahab. Ahab and Elisha had this conflict. And even after Ahab dies, Elisha hangs on a little bit longer and serves with a couple of his sons there. And, uh, and, and this little conflict that they have is a mirror. It kind of represents a bigger conflict, the conflict of the one true and only existing God with this false God that doesn't exist, Baal, that all these people are worshiping, which is ironic to think you're having a contest between something that doesn't exist and the creator of all. And, and so you come through Elijah's story. <coughs> it's found in 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings chapter 2. And, uh, and today, you know, we're going to continue. So far, we have seen uh, Elijah on the road uh, to uh, Zarephath, in which we see that there is only one God, the Lord, and he is always in control. On the road to Carmel, we see that no one can follow God part-time. Last week, on the road to Horeb, and we saw that God always has a purpose. And today, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 21, we're on the road to Jezreel. And as we uh, come on the road to Jezreel, uh, here's what I want you to see in the message today. God is just. And in his justice, he gives us time to repent. God is just. And in his justice, he gives people time to repent. And so we begin the message today looking at the result of corruption. Because Ahab was a very corrupt king. And his corruption was in large part due to the influence of his evil, godless, pagan, Baal-worshipping wife, Jezebel. <coughs> and, and so you come into the story and so, and to share with you right off the bat, understand this, and this will dominate most of our message, not concept-wise. Evil influences will produce evil results. Evil influences 
produce evil results. In the New Testament, we're told what you reap is that which you sow. And, and we need to realize, if you surround yourself with that which is good and noble, then those will be good consequences. But if the people you're with are evil, if your philosophies are evil, if the things you surround yourself with, the ideologies are evil, eventually it will produce evil results. Sometimes uh, we, we kind of think that life isn't fair. You ever think that right now? I know there's a lot of things that aren't fair. Uh, but life isn't really designed to be fair anymore. Fairness ended at the Garden of Eden. When sin came into the world... Things stop being fair. Now, we, we, there's some things can be fair. You know, when, when you play a football game, you, you want fairness, obviously, the same set of rules. But I can tell you sometimes uh, when uh, the end of the game, you still think you weren't treated fairly, right? I mean, you, just, you think that. Uh, you think your team wasn't treated fairly. Having played, uh, when you play Division Three football like I did, you go to a lot of crazy, weird places. And we used to play in Mexico. Let me tell you, <laughs> there ain't nothing fair about the officials in Mexico, life ain't fair, especially in a foreign country when your main goal is simply to get out alive when it's all over. So fairness isn't always there. Fairness is subjective. What may be fair to you may not be fair to me. The real goal is justice. See, justice is always objective. There is a set of standards in our country. The Constitution is a standard, and we measure justice. But our main source of justice is always God. And what God expects of us and God, how God reveals himself to us. This is important in the passage we're in today. In the time that we're in, there's this king. And the kings of Israel, unlike any other kings and any other nations around them, had a code of justice that was established by the revelation of God. See, kings and other nations, they could do whatever they wanted. They could, they could harm people. They could take people's property. There was nothing to stop them. But the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, God's kings always had the revelation of God. They were bound by the same laws as the people. In um, 2 Samuel 11, when David steals the wife of uh, Uriah and takes and commits adultery with Bathsheba and then has Uriah killed, God holds him to the standard. So the prophet Nathan comes and condemns David, and David has to repent of his sin, and all the people knew he sinned. And they always was an issue he dealt with. Israel's kings were held to the same standard. So we come to Ahab. Ahab was married to Jezebel who came from a different kingdom. The kingdom of the Canaanites in Phoenicia. And they could do whatever they wanted. And instead of helping Ahab, reminding Ahab, he was bound by the same sense of justice as the people. She wanted to hold him to no sense of justice. See, evil influence always produces evil results. And so we come to the story today. In the background of the story today is the inherited land that the people of Israel had. All the way back from the time of Joshua when they entered the promised land, God gave the different tribes land and the tribes divided up amongst the families. But in that situation, understand that the land was the source of wealth to everybody and it was supposed to stay within their families. And a lot of places in the law, in the first five books, talk about that some. In Leviticus, in chapter 25, it talks about the importance of land. And verse 23 kind of sets that tone. So let me take you to Leviticus 25, verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. It belongs to God. You are aliens and sojourners with me. So God is saying this. This is mine. I'm giving it to you. You need to keep it. Don't sell it off. Don't get rid of it. And then there's a whole more verses talking about all that. But the, here's the thing. That land had to stay in that family. If, if someone died without a child to inherit the land, 
their, their widow would then marry the next eligible relative that she could, and the first child they had together would inherit the land of the deceased man. You've got to keep the land in the family. If you had to sell your land, sell it to a family member. If you couldn't sell it to a family member, someone else bought it, eventually you had to give the land back. That brings us to the 21st chapter of 1 Kings. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Now, to an American, this seems like a pretty straightforward situation. Naboth uh, has some land. Ahab wants to buy it. I'm making you an offer. But in the law of God, that wasn't allowed. Naboth couldn't sell that property to Ahab just to sell it as any kind of business arrangement. So it's very clear Naboth's reaction. Now, the, the king Ahab had two palaces, one in Samaria, one in Jezreel. In Jezreel, that there was a, a garden he wanted to grow, and there was a nice piece of property that belonged to Naboth right next to him. And, and so he asked to sell the property. And so Naboth said, the Lord forbid. In other words, he relied upon the law of God. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do this. I can't do that. Now, he was dealing with the king. So he really had to invoke the understanding of God's law. Because not only was he dealing with the king, he was dealing with a corrupt king. Everybody knew it, who had a corrupt wife. And, you know, evil influences will always produce evil results. So Naboth had good reason to be concerned. So he said, the Lord forbid that I can sell this to you. And that was it. That was the end of the deal. And Ahab was bound by that. Ahab goes back in verse 4 through 8. We see him sulking back at his palace in Samaria. And Jezebel comes along and finds out why he's sulking. And she can't believe. She comes from the place. She go take what you want. You're the king. So she hatches his plot. She's going to involve the leadership of wherever Naboth lives. Now, Naboth's called the Jezreelite. That's his ancestral home, but he may not live there. But whatever town he lives in, we don't know. She comes up with a plan, involves the leadership of that town, who could have all said, no, we're not going to go along with your plan. But she involves them, writes a letter, and this is what we see in verse 9. Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among all the people. But seat two scoundrels or wicked men opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Get this. The elders and nobles who live in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. So she has a thoroughly wicked and corrupt process in mind. Back then in cities and communities and towns when there was issues the elders would meet, Naboth was probably one of the prominent men of the city and they met to discuss an issue Naboth didn't know what, and the accusation was brought against him, probably relating to the deal with Ahab, probably in relationship to his refusal to sell Ahab's land, uh, his land to Ahab, and in taking that oath, that he had somehow cursed God. Now, it's kind of ironic that Jezebel, who brought, you know, Baalism in to wipe out the worship of Yahweh, would, would bring charges that Naboth had cursed Yahweh, but she did. Uh, cursing God was sin is punishable by, by death. He also, she said, you know, cursed the king, which wasn't punishable by death. It was still serious. They had two witnesses. You had to have two witnesses to bring kind of charges against anybody. Both lied, and so he was found guilty, and he was killed. He was put to death. Most likely, his children were put to death as well. You see, because 
If Naboth died, his kids would inherit the land. You had to wipe out all of his family. In 2 Kings chapter 9, we're told that Jezebel had the children of Naboth killed as well. That's a pretty serious thing that happens. Verse 15, we, we see this. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth Jezreelite that he refused to sell to you. He is no longer alive. He's dead. And when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Didn't buy it even. Didn't do anything. Just took it. So you see the absolute corruption of this situation. The evilness that we see is, is unbelievable. This is, by, by every standard we can think of, this is a totally evil, corrupt practice that the king would kill one of his servants and their children on a false pretense just to take the property. But evil influences produce evil results. We should never forget there's a situation of evil. And right now we see no justice. There's, there's, at, at this point in the story... There's a total lack of justice. I just want to pause here for a moment and remind us a couple of things that we need to see at this point. And as a follower of Jesus, it's important to remember that Christians should oppose corruption wherever and whenever we find it. Whenever we find corruption, wherever we find corruption, we should always oppose it. It doesn't have to involve us. It may involve people we don't even like. It may involve people that, for whatever process we're going through at work or at school or in politics or in the neighborhood, people who are on opposite ends of something that we're a part of. But if we see injustice, we see corruption against them, we should always oppose it, no matter who it happens to. That should be natural within us. And it's not, it's not the injustice that the world says. It's from the perspective of God. Always understand, we care about the perspective of God. But the other thing we need to keep in mind is this. Power must be used for the benefit of others and not for oneself. Power, influence, or authority. It is so easy to abuse that. And, and we see it constantly. I mean, we, we live in a time when it just seems that in the world and even in our country, people take what authority they have, what influence they have, what power they have, and abuse it. And, and, and we have to be careful. It can happen in the family. You know, there's a reason in the book of Proverbs, there's a lot, lot of pa- passages about parenting and raising up your kids and all that. And, and in all the ones we look to, it says, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Yeah, all that stuff. It also says, don't break the spirit of a child. Be careful with that child's spirit. In, in Ephesians, when, when we see in chapter 6 about the family, and, and Paul writes, children, obey your parents. And then he says, fathers, don't exasperate your kids. There's always the danger that we take the authority we have to crush someone. We see it in business. You know, we, we see when people they get some authority or get some leverage over someone else and they use that to advance their own cause and, and to hurt other people. And that's, that's corruption. We, we, see it, we see it in the church. Somebody gets a little influence, gets a little bit of authority, gets a position. They have their own agenda they're trying uh, to enact. I, I've seen and heard of churches, I've never had to deal with it personally, uh, at least not much, where, where someone tries to get a staff member fired for what personal reasons and their influence. And it's, that's all corruption. It's all wrong. It's all abusing of power. And we should always be in opposition to that. Just remember this. Evil influences will always produce evil results. So we see the result of this corruption. But the story is going to continue, and we're going to see about setting things right. We like to know that things get set right. 
We like to see when there's a lack of justice, things are corrected. Uh, regardless of your political affiliation, it doesn't matter in this story. A few weeks ago, a, a lady in, in Dallas uh, had some hair salons. She decided to open up against the county's orders, right or wrong, not going to that. But when she came before the judge, uh, the judge said, you admit you're wrong and say you're sorry. And she says, I'm not going to do that. I don't think so. And so he put her in jail for not doing what he told her to do because his judgeship was offended. And immediately everybody recognizes this is not just. You want to find her, find her. You can't put her in jail for that. And so what happens? A governor, lieutenant governor, attorney generals, uh, the Texas Supreme Court all came back and said, you can't do that. They had to set things right because we understand that. We want injustice to be set right. Here's the thing. At some point, God will set all things right in this life and in the next. In this life and in the next, God will set all things right. Elijah now begins to take on a bit of a different role. So far, we have seen Elijah do the big things. He brings a drought, you know, to show that the God of the Canaanites doesn't really exist. Then he raises, you know, a dead child back to life. That's a big thing. And then, you know, he, he, he comes to Mount Caramel, and God rains down fire, you know, and, and, and snatches up the altar of the bull to show that he's the one true God. I mean, there's, these are big events. But we saw last week that God's about to take Elijah to a different journey. And he becomes like more of just a regular court prophet. There's a lot of prophets in and out of the book of Kings, even in Elijah's time. In chapter 20, which doesn't concern Elijah, there was an unknown prophet. In chapter 22, Micaiah, the prophet, uh, will tell you know, Ahab, you're going to die. I mean, there's other prophets hanging around. And, and God has something for Elijah to do. And so Beginning in 17, we begin to see that. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. This is what I want you to say to him. This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. So God has now had enough of Ahab. It's a little bit interesting that all the bringing into the worship of Baal and all those events, God has not yet pronounced a sentence upon Ahab. God doesn't pronounce a sentence on Ahab until he takes his power and it abuses it in a corrupt fashion to take the life of Naboth and Naboth's kids. And so God tells Elijah, you're going to go to Naboth and you're going to bring a charge against him for which he is guilty in the sentence. You're going to charge him with murdering someone's life to take their property, Naboth, and then you're going to pronounce the sentence. In the spot where Naboth died, in the area where Naboth died, the dogs will come and lick your blood. Now, that's, that, you know, that's, that's an unusual thing to hear in the 21st century. We don't think of dying and some dogs licking up our blood. And by the way, these dogs weren't like pets. They weren't like Fifi. You know, they weren't like your little, my, my little chihuahuas. They weren't my chihuahuas. You know? my, I can't picture my chihuahuas licking up the blood of a king. These were more like wild dogs. You know, from being from South Texas, they'd be like coyotes, and, and uh, even from here, coyotes, or they'd be like wild hogs. I mean, they were, they were kind of, a, they were wild dogs. And so he pronounces this, and so, you know, Elijah's going to go, and he's going to confront then Ahab, and in confronting Ahab, he's going to bring this about, and then he's also going to evidently expand upon it, because God may have showed him more. He just said a little bit more, but he spoke as a prophet. Here's what he says in verse 20. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, so you have found me, my enemy. And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do the evil in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, can you imagine being told you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord? 
And he says, I am going to bring disaster on you, speaking on behalf of God. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nepot, like that of Baasha, son of Ajah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also, concerning Jezebel, about time to do something with Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. And then the writer kind of interjects this. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel's wife, he behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. I mean, he just lays it on him. He pronounces, this is what's going to happen. You have sold yourself to do evil. I can't imagine being told, you know, basically through the revelation of God, that you have sold yourself to evil. And because of that, not only the judgment was pronounced upon Ahab, but upon his children, just as Ahab wiped out the children of Naboth. His children will be wiped out as well, his sons. Now, his sons who would follow him were evil also. Uh, Isaiah's king and then Jerome's king, they were evil just as well. But he's pronounced his judgment on them and finally on Jezebel. My goodness, it's about time. So God's going to set all things straight. And we are told that all of this was because he sold Israel into idolatry. And the whole people got drugged in it with him. In the next chapter, in chapter 22, in verse 38, Ahab has been killed in battle. And in his chariot is blood from where he was killed. And so it says they washed the blood out. And when they washed the blood out, the dogs came and licked up the blood, just as it was said. Later on, much later on, really, in chapter 9 of 2 Kings, his last son, who is King Joram, dies. And when Jehu has Joram killed, he takes his body there in the area of, of Jezreel and throws it into Naboth's vineyard. And there he, his body lays, and the dogs come and tear it up. And then finally in chapter 9, at the end of it, Jezebel, who's in Jezreel, is thrown from the top of a building or from the, the room of a building several stories high. And she goes down and, and, and just, you know, splat. You know, it's a vivid picture. And the dogs and the birds come and eat her body. Everything happened just the way God's man said it would. Because God sets things right. But there's still more. Verse 27, we find out this. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. He was humbled, he was contrite, he repented. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Ahab repents. And because of his repentance, it's not that he's not going to have the whole blood thing happen. But here's the thing. He won't see the disaster occur to his sons and his wife. Most importantly, his sons. He will be spared of seeing his line wiped out before him. Because that's the indication of what was going to happen. That, that he would watch all of his ancestral line destroyed at one time in his presence. And God said, because you repent. And God rewards repentance. We will not do that. Instead, they will die later. Now, God's going to set all things straight, but God still allows for repentance. So he, we, we see in this story then, evil influences produce evil results. But there's going to come a time when God sets all things right in this life and the next. With that in mind, 
I'm going to talk to you a little bit as we kind of bring this message to a close and some things we really need to see, how it understands us and impacts us in our life. One of the difficult things to do is come to these passages in the Old Testament and understand them for us today because we don't relate directly to them. It's, it's hard to go back into the 9th century B.C. And the whole thing about dogs licking up our blood, that was a curse back then. It, that doesn't, we don't see that in our culture. That doesn't make sense to us. And, and you know, the idea of kings, we don't, we don't have kings. We, we, we don't function that way in our culture. And so to interpret a passage, you have to understand it in its setting. But then to understand that in our setting, we have to find a way to apply it. Remember, one of the things I always say is the Old Testament always points to Jesus. So everything's moving forward to God's plan of salvation. And in all these stories, we see glimpses of God in his nature as it relates to salvation, how God's nature relates to us being saved. And so let me share with you just a few things here. This, this is important. God works in the eternal not just in the temporal. See, we, we want God to do something right here and now, and I get that. I'm that way. I, I want God, God to do something now. But God works from the standpoint of what is eternal. And so sometimes in the temporal, things like we see in, in the story of Kings, prophets of Baal are there, and, and Baalism comes, and people suffer, and, and, uh, and, and people hurt. And, and we say, why, why does God do something? Because God is bringing about a, an end that has an eternal sense to it. There's, there's something fantastic ahead, something bigger than just our temporal experience. And in, 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 in the cross of Christ, you see that. Here is Jesus who was sinless, innocent, suffering and dying on the cross in the temple. Why? Because there was something eternal at stake, our eternal salvation. It's hard for people who aren't followers of Christ to understand this. And I get that. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this doesn't make sense to you. But as a follower of Christ, one of the things I understand is that part of the temporal suffering, the temporal experience, is understanding there's more to this life. There's something beyond that that is eternal. My faith in Christ, I understand I'm an eternal being created to exist for all eternity. Coming to Jesus, I am saved forever for all eternity. There is something eternal. So there is, there is sometimes in this temporal life, injustice. In that injustice is the opportunity for something eternal to happen, for the glory and the majesty of God to be seen. And, and that's exactly what happens in the Elijah narrative. That the evil temporal nature of the worship of Baal eventually gives way to the eternal glory of God, defeating the prophets of Baal, defrauding the king, and taking all that evil and setting all of that right. But also... Part of the reason for that is this. God gives people time to repent. So one of the reasons God deals with the eternal, not just the temporal, is he wants people to repent. And if God always deals with evil at that moment, people have no opportunity to repent of sin. Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, his message begins this way. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent, repent. The time to repent in Jonah it's a wonderful book. Jonah is told, you know, the whole fish thing happens, I get it, but Jonah is told, go to Nineveh and preach the message 40 days and Nineveh will be no more. And so he goes and he says, 40 days, Nineveh will be no more. There's judgment. There's, there's, God gives them no hope except they repent. And when, God, when they repent, God relents and doesn't judge them. And Jonah gets upset. And in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, the very last verse of Jonah, God says, should I not have compassion on these people? Shouldn't I have mercy on them? 
God works through the eternal, not just the temporal, to give people a chance to repent. Having said that, though, we must remember that God will always set things right. At some point, God says enough. Justice has to prevail because he is a just God. Jesus came into this world for one simple reason, to bring us to God so we might have a saving relationship with him, to help take our sin and set things right. That's why he came. The book of Revelation is a fascinating book. And unfortunately, so many times people get in there and they simply just mess it all up, trying to to find all this stuff that's probably not really there. John wrote that at the very end of the first century, through a time of immense persecution. Nero had begun persecution. It took Paul's life, took Peter's life, and now Domitian is just wiping out Christians. and, And he writes to these churches in Asia Minor, Turkey. And this is what he says. In the end... God wins. That's what Revelation is about. In the end, God wins. And those who are part of God, you win also. Reason is simply this. Revelation reminds us, God will always set things right. He is a God who is just. Evil influences will produce evil results. But a just God will eventually set all that right. In your life, I know it can be a struggle. Some of you may experience at some point injustice, suffering, that temporal that's so hard. And and you're trying to understand the reason for all this. Remember these last few weeks, God is always in control. God expects a full-time commitment from us, and God always has a plan. And now we see that God is just. If you take all of that into consideration, then understand this. The things that you're struggling with, trust God with those. God's in control. He'll, He'll set things right. Trust God with that because God has a, a plan and purpose for you. Trust God with what you're struggling with because God is a just God. And trust him. And so I encourage you today to trust God with the trials, the tribulations, the struggles you may have, the uncertainty that may exist. Some of you are not followers of Christ. And if you're not a follower of Christ, I, I want to encourage you to give your life to Jesus, to trust him to be your savior. That's why he came. The most important thing to set right is your relationship with God. If you're the one who is causing the oppression, if you're the one who is causing the lack of justice, remember this, you need to repent. You need to change that. At some point, God's going to say enough and set things right. In our time of invitation, we want to give you the opportunity to respond. And normally we stand here, but today, at least for a few weeks, we're not going to ask you to come forward at invitation time. At the end of the service, myself and someone else will we'll be over in the conference area. And if you need to talk to one of us, if you need to come and ask for prayer, maybe, or give your life to Christ or join the church or whatever, we'll be back there. You can come talk. If, if you're online, you can text, respond to a phone number that will appear up on the screen. Or you can, if you want to, go to our, our website and, and uh, send us an email. But listen, the thing we want you to do is, is remember God's in absolute control. God always has a plan. Always. And that God wants a full-time commitment from you. And that God is just. So in the midst of what you're struggling through, trust God. Father, thank you for Christ, who is the Savior of our life, the Savior of our souls. And I know life's a struggle. These last couple of months have been difficult. And, it, and it's, it's a testing sometimes of where we are in our faith. But we can never lose sight of the control you have, the power you have. And that you're such a just God. You're going to make everything right. 
Take away the evil influence. Take away, Father, those struggles that we have. Let us trust you completely and depend upon you, knowing that you love us, knowing that you care for us. God, you are just, and you are always in control, and you always have a plan and purpose. So let us be completely committed to you. In Jesus' name.